You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. We've been um, working our way through the book of the book of Joshua, and um, the last uh, last week we're we're looking at a a passage that comes as a little bit of a surprise to us because up to that point in time, Joshua and the Israelites had been um, uh, just just doing so well. They had entered the promised land. They had they had taken the city of Jericho. Everything seemed to be unfolding so smoothly for them. And then suddenly, surprise, surprise, they, they find themselves defeated by this nothing, this nothing little city. And it causes them to really ask some big questions, to fall on their knees, to fall on their face and think, oh no, we are ruined as a, as a people. What has, has happened here? And, uh, and it turns out, of course, as we, as we read the passage, and we're going to look at it again tonight, that, that in, the, in the camp for Israel, there was sin. A particular man by the name of Achan had sinned, and we read about this in, in chapter 7. And the whole nation was impacted by this. And uh, because of this, they could go no further. Um, they were weak, and they were alienated from God. They were in trouble. They were in trouble. And so we started to, to look at this whole area of what happens when we stray from God, when we sin. What happens when we get lost? And it can happen, spiritually speaking, that we can get weighed down by sin, which, if it is not dealt with, can have significant repercussions for our spiritual walk. It can mean that, that we find ourselves suddenly unable to go forward in our spiritual life. Sin has to be dealt with. It has to be dealt with. And so we started by having a look at this last week. When you get lost, how can you get home again? And we started to talk about, well, actually this chapter, there are some things in here which are quite alarming, but here are four steps to get you home. And we started by looking at the first two steps to get you home, and and then we... Uh, um, Oh, great. Thank you. I'm looking for a prop, which, is, which we'll, we'll use in a moment. Um, but we, we started by looking at the first two steps to get you home. And so we, we had you kind of half sanctified. And then I said, but we'll have to wait till next week for steps three and four. Now we're there. We're going to finish you up tonight. We're going to have you fully sanctified. That's kind of good news, isn't it? You can go home with a bit of a kick in your step. But four steps that will get you home when you come to one of those places in life, which, which actually we all do from time to time, where you find that you have strayed from the ways of God. Put bluntly, you've sinned. Well, what do you do when that happens? And, and how do you get home again? Um, how do we deal with this? So we looked at last week at, at a couple of things. Firstly, we had to, we had to actually talk about Sin, the reality of sin, because we don't like to talk about that today. We're, we reflect on the fact that in a postmodern society, everything gets a bit blurred. But the Bible says there is a way that is right, and it is a way that is wrong. And the wrong isn't right, and the right isn't wrong, and it really is that simple. And when we get right things wrong, that's sin. When we stray from the ways of God, that is sin. It affects our relationship with God, and there's no escaping this 
there will be judgment for it. Now, judgment, by the way, you kind of, you kind of immediately associate that with punishment, don't you? Yep, that's a part of it. But, but think about the word judgment to judge correctly. Think about it from that point of view just for a moment. God will judge correctly between right and wrong one day. And that, by the way, carries its own punishment with us. When we choose the wrong, we are choosing the punishment that goes along with it. And the punishment that comes our way is, is simply the, the natural repercussions of the choices that we make in, in this lifetime. So there is a thing called sin, and there is a God who is righteous who is going to judge what is right and what is wrong, and, and we will come under that judgment. We need to, we need to face that reality. So, We've strayed from God. How do we get home? We, we talked last week about the first step is face it. We, there's this funny moment in the passage, if you like, or at least alarming, where, where Joshua is face down on the ground because of the sin of Israel. He doesn't know what to do. And God says, what are you doing on your face? Stand up. And basically, it's an encouragement to, okay, come on, get up. Let's face this thing together. And it's a great, a great encouragement to us, too, that when we have strayed from the ways of God, when we have sinned, it's all right. God says, come on, we can face this together. Get up, get up, let's face this. Don't wallow in it. Uh, don't, don't stay there in self-pity. No, let's get up, let's get going, let's face the sin. Let's face it. And then secondly, we talked about the fact we, we need to realize our need to deal with the sin. Okay, we face the reality of the sin, but, but we need to realize that, that now this has to be dealt with. Why? Well, um, simply put, God says to Joshua, uh, the fact that there is sin in the camp, the fact that sin has affected the nation of Israel means two things. You are weak and you can't face your enemies, and I will no longer be with you. Now, translate that into our day and age, the life of the Christian, what does that mean? It means that we too, when we do not deal with sin, are weak before our enemy. We're just weak. We don't have the same strength to face our enemy. And we have a very real enemy who is described in different ways throughout Scripture as a, as a thief, as a deceiver, as a lion prowling around looking for somebody to devour. Not a nice enemy to face. And we are weak before that enemy when we fail to deal with sin. It's a little bit like this. We, we talked about, just by really, really quick recap, we talked about the fact that um, God, by his grace, um, longs to, to enable us uh, through, through this huge reservoir of grace to, um, to accomplish good works, to simply put, to have the life you've, you've always wanted. That's what God desires for you. And, well, we'd all love to do that, wouldn't we? And uh, um, Philippians 2.13, Paul, Paul just gives us this encouragement. He tells us that, that God is working in us to enable us to will and to act according to his good purposes. God has a whole grace, no, a sea of grace available to us to flow through our lives to enable us to act and to will according to his good purposes. But when we sin, it's like getting a, a kink in the hose. It's kind of, it's, it's like a block. And it, 
And it means that grace can't flow as it should. The end result is we become weak. We don't have those resources that we are so dependent upon to be able to act and to will according to God's good purposes. There's, there's a blockage there. And so that needs to be dealt with. That's, that's one, one of the reasons um, that we have to deal with our sin. And the other is, quite, quite honestly, that we no longer experience the intimacy of God's presence in the way that we used to when there is sin in our lives. Does he leave us? No, he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But we have blocked, we have produced a block in our life, which means that we are unable to appreciate and realize that precious intimacy of a close relationship with God, not when there is sin in our life. He is a holy God, and he will not be associated with sin. That's as simple as that. Sometimes we diminish sin, and I think our diminished sense of the, the impact of sin is because we have a diminished sense of the holiness of God. When we fail to realize just how different he is to a world that is fallen and the world that we are very, very used to, we can downplay the significance of sin because we no longer realize the holiness of God. We understand the the impact of sin and the weight of sin, the more we understand just how beautiful and holy and splendid God is, which is another good reason, by the way, to to fill your mind with all of the, the wonderful characteristics of God and who he is, to praise him and, and give thanksgiving and to focus on his, on his being. Because the more we do that and the more we realize just how beautiful and holy he is. We also realize our need for a savior and the provision that's been made. So step one to getting you back home is to face the sin. Step two, this is the review, is to to realize our need to deal with it. And so now we come to to step three, and that is we need to deal with the sin. And step four is to deal with the sinner. So let me read to you from this passage, and we'll see how this unfolded in Joshua chapter chapter 7. I'm going to read from verse 13. Um, God says to Joshua, so go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things among you, Israel, and you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord chooses shall come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord chooses shall come forward family by family. And the family the Lord chooses shall come forward man by man. And whoever is caught with the devoted things shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. For he has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. And so firstly, there is this, this time, is it... To consecrate yourselves, you know, because this is that moment of repentance. This is, oh, well, you know, you've done wrong. Now, now cleanse yourself before God. Repent, turn from that and, and present yourself now to God. And, and so in verse 16, we read, well, that's exactly what Israel did. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward. 
And the Zerahites were chosen. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was chosen. And Joshua had his family come forward, man by man, and Achan, son of Kami, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was chosen. And then Joshua said to Achan, oh, My son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. And Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I, and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath but they took the things from the tent and they brought them to joshua and all the israelites and they spread them out before the lord then joshua together with all israel took achan son of zerah the silver the robe the gold bar his sons and daughters his cattle donkeys and sheep his tent and all that he had to the valley of achor joshua said why have you brought this trouble upon us? The Lord will now bring trouble on you today. And then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. And over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor, ever since. Well, this passage raises a number of questions, and I may disappoint you tonight with my answers. But let me try and, and satisfy a little of the natural curiosity that is aroused when we read a difficult passage such as this. Firstly, we note that this could not go unignored. It could not go ignored. There was no way around this. Obviously, the nation of Israel, and they were numerous by this time, had been utterly defeated and demoralized by this little city. There was no going forward till they dealt with this. This could not be ignored. It could not go unpunished. And the punishment seems severe, and usually for theft in the Old Testament, it wasn't immediate stealing. Uh, sorry, it wasn't immediate stoning. For theft, you would repay and then you would repay some more. But you wouldn't be necessarily killed for it. So what's going on here? It would seem that the fact that Achan had stolen from God himself. You see, this, all of the plunder from, from the city of Jericho, this was the first fruits of what Israel would be would be receiving as they entered the promised land. And for that reason, this was special. This belonged to God. And Achan had stolen from God. So it, it could not go unpunished either. Now, why death? Well, it would seem that perhaps, and we can only speculate here because there are things the passage tells us and there are things the passage doesn't tell us. But it's possible that it could be an object lesson. It was possible that 
such a grievous sin, such as stealing from God, needed to be met with such a harsh punishment that there would be little doubt in the minds of everybody else in Israel that this was not okay, not at all. That's a possibility. Um, Why the family? Well, maybe it wasn't just an object lesson for the rest of the nation. Maybe the family, and we don't know for sure, but maybe the family were, were older and of the age where they were able to be accomplices with Achan, and they were actually involved in, in the, whole, the whole deception. We don't know. There are many things we don't know. We don't know what is the ultimate fate of their souls. And there are many difficult passages throughout the Old Testament like this. We don't know if at some stage or another there will be a a portion of grace that could be shown to those who have experienced the harsh punishment that, that they had to endure in the Old Testament. We have a verse which is a bit puzzling, such as 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22. Some have said, Luther was one of them, perhaps this is the most puzzling verse in, in all of Scripture. It simply reads, and this, this bit you know, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That you may have heard of at some point. But have you heard this next bit? Verse 19, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Some think that those are the spirits that live in Hades. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. Now, as the reference for the days of Noah, because he then goes on and he makes a link between Noah and baptism and so forth. But could it be that here is a reference to, to those who in, in days gone by, in days past, have, have suffered punishment, but not understood the righteousness that one day would be available through Christ Jesus. And now he proclaims that very thing to them. We don't know. Then again, a speculation. But as we often say of these things, when we don't understand his ways, trust in his character. The character of God is always good. He is the definition of good. When we don't understand what it is he's up to, we trust in his his character. Now, we knew, or sorry, he knew, God, that one day we would read this passage and we would be puzzled and baffled, quite bewildered by these things. Yet he leaves certain questions unanswered. And in those moments is a quiet, silent invitation. I won't tell you everything, actually. Yes, there is mystery and the need to practice faith. You don't know all things, but here's my question. Will you still trust me? Will you still trust me? And I believe that with some of the unanswered questions in this passage, that invitation echoes loud. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? We don't understand his ways, but will we trust in his character? What we do know and what is very, very clear from this passage is simply this. Undealt with sin threatened to destroy the whole nation. But Achan's death was able to turn away God's anger. That's what we know. The sin threatened to destroy Israel. Sin threatens to destroy you if it is undealt with. Seriously. There is no escaping that thought. And 
And we need to reckon with the fact that it's a reality. Undealt with sin will destroy us. But fortunately, there is a way to turn back God's anger. And we need to understand this. And I, I mentioned this as a little aside in the morning service. When you study church history and you study the great revivals, do you know one of the reoccurring themes of the great revivals was this? There was a deep understanding of and repentance from sin. It goes with every single revival. There was never a revival where there wasn't a great repentance of sin. And perhaps if there's something that we can learn in this day and age is it is a good thing for us to face up to this. Sin is a reality. It's a thing. And it needs to be dealt with. But the beauty is, it can be, it seems, it can be one of the keys to revival. And it could be the thing that helps unlock the prayer of many saints in Australia, that God would bring revival to this nation, the great self-land of his Holy Spirit. And we know this, uh, Jonathan Edwards, one of the great revivalist preachers and a great reformer, he had a famous sermon. You can read it online if you like. But in the hands of an angry God, he talks about how God has provided a way to turn back his wrath, to turn back his anger. Steve Camp had a song, actually, um, and he was, he was kind of piggybacking on those words. And he basically, it's a beautiful picture. Yes, we're in the hands of an angry God, but those hands are pierced and bleeding. It's a picture of the way that God has provided a means by which his anger could be turned away from, from us and dealt with. And that brings us to step three. Step three, deal with the sin. We see from this passage a, a couple of things. Firstly, it had to be exposed, and sin in our life has to be exposed. It really does. It's, it's where it all starts. And if you have a time in your life where you're just feeling a little bit dry and a little bit, well, I guess, uh, estranged from God, just like that, that, that intimacy that you used to know, that you used to share, you used to have, you used to rejoice over, you're not currently experiencing that, you know, a time of just inviting the Holy Spirit to shine the light of his truth into your life and expose anything that might not be pleasing to him is a beautiful way to begin that journey back home. It needs to be exposed. Sin needs to be exposed. And then it needs to be confessed as well. Joshua invites Achan, tell me, son. What is it that you've done? It needs to be confessed. We need to come to that place where we agree with God. Okay, I got this wrong, didn't I? Something I thought, something I said, something I did. I got it wrong, didn't I, God? And I'm sorry. That is what confession is, agreeing with God that we, we're wrong. We're wrong. We're not right. We're wrong. There's no, no kind of squirming about it. It is what it is. God, I, I got that wrong, didn't I? And then, of course, understanding that there also needs to be atonement for that. The sin cannot go unpunished. Now, in this regard, 
um, we would turn to a, to a passage, a beautiful passage, actually. And let me turn your attention to it here in 1 John. Let me read to you 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 to 9. He has just talked about the fact that God is light. And so he says in verse 7, But if we walk in the light, God is light, remember. If we walk in the light, here are two benefits. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, here are two benefits. Firstly, we have fellowship with one another. That's a good benefit. But secondly, look at this. The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. How does that work? Well, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Listen, verse 9, if we confess our sins, agree with God that we have sinned. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. You can call on the character of God. And he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Watchman Nee says, you know, God says that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover our sin. God looks at, God looks at the, the sinner, he looks at the sin, and he looks at the fact that we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of his son. And he says, oh, that's my son's blood. That'll do it. That'll do it. You're covered. That's enough for me. That is sufficient for me. And Watchman Nee just quips, all right, so if that's sufficient for God, who are you to disagree? You're covered. When we are in Greece, we um, had an afternoon off and we gathered at one of, the, one of the motels that some of the team were staying at. It had a lovely little swimming pool and, and uh, uh, there was a family with us, the guest family, and, and they um, were in the pool. It's pretty, pretty hot this afternoon. And they invited me to jump in the pool with them and, and uh, we're going to play a game of Marco Polo. I don't know if you know how that game works, but, but one person in the swimming pool has to close their eyes and, and they yell out, Marco. Now, the idea is they've got to tag somebody else because their eyes are closed. You're in the swimming pool and, you know, you're kind of slow to move around. But when they yell out, Marco, you're, everybody else with their eyes open has to yell out, Polo. Well, that person's listening for that voice and and they start to zero in on it, and, and finally you can find yourself a little bit cornered. You know, if they yell out, Marco, you have to yell out, Polo, Polo. And you think, any minute, I can't go anywhere else. They're going to, they're going to tag me. And it might occur to you, well, their eyes are closed, right? What are they going to know if I'm in the pool or not? And so out of the pool you hop, and you can run around to another location. Their eyes are closed, okay? And then you can leap from the edge of the pool back in again, unless that astute young player happens to work out that you have gotten out of the pool. They're saying Marco, and now they can't hear Polo anymore, and they're putting two and two together, and they've worked out you are out of the pool, and if they cry out, Fish out of water, you're done. You are done. The ramifications are huge. You're beat. You've sinned. You are a fish out of water. You are sprung. And so this was the game we were going to play, and, and young Tabby Guest decided that the lead pastor should, should be the bad person. And so we, we, had a, we had a game of that. It was I remember doing that with my kids many, many years ago. Fish out of water. You know, there's a, there's a sense in which 
um, we can find ourselves at times sprung. Yep, there can be sin in our life. It is undealt with. And there we are like a fish out of water. And that's not a good thing, by the way, literally speaking, quite apart from the game. You don't want to be a fish out of water. It's not good for you. And the accuser of the brethren, he's described as, as a thief and a deceiver, but he also accuses us. He accuses us of being like a fish out of water. We're not the Christian we ought to be, are we? And in that moment, you need to do something. You need to get covered with the blood of the Lamb. You need to dive into a pool of grace, a sea of forgiveness that is available to each and every believer. You need to get back into that place where you are covered by his blood. And how do you do that? By simply confessing it, by simply saying, sprung, you're right, I'm like a fish out of water. What am I doing on the edge? Why did I think I was going to get away with that? There is an easy remedy, folks. Get back into the covering of Jesus Christ. And you simply have to confess your sin. How easy is that? Well, you might argue, yeah, I don't know if that would do it. Come on, there's got to be a bit more to it than that. Can't be that easy. Well, John says this is all staked on the character of God. He is faithful and just, and he will do it. This is not about you. Sorry. It's about him. He's faithful. He's just. He's staked his character on this. You confess your sin. He's faithful. He's just. That's who God is. You're covered. He will forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This now is not about you. This is about the character of God. That's what's in question here. He is faithful, he is just, and you are covered absolutely 100%. And it is at times like this, we need to, as the accuser comes to us and kind of, kind of says, but you've sinned. Say, so, all right. I confess that, but I'm covered. My sin is dealt with, step three. My concern regarding the fact that I've slipped up again, despite the fact that I'm a Christian, it's dealt with. I'm covered. I simply have to confess it. There you go. Isn't, I tell you, we could stop right there and be pretty happy people, yeah? Isn't that encouraging for you? It gets me out of bed in the morning. Well, I kind of, you know, I reckon I could face another day. But here's where the enemy gets, gets in again. All right, we're convinced our sin is dealt with. But the deceiver, the one who loves us to live in just half the truth, who loves to dim the lights on the full revelation of God, he loves to have us believe that our sin is dealt with, but we're still fundamentally a sinner. And we're going to be prone to muck it up again and again and again. And here's the thing, and I am so sorry that it has taken me decades as a Christian to get my head around this, but I come from a generation where we didn't quite necessarily know how to grapple with this truth. So for you younger Christians, and 
younger disciples, I am so happy (laughs) that you get to wrap your heads around this a lot earlier than I ever did. But here's here's the whole truth. God has not just dealt with your sin, but he has dealt with you, the sinner. And Achan also had to be dealt with. Joshua says to Achan, why did you bring this upon us? One of the realities for Israel at that time was Achan's sin affected everybody. And the sinner had to be dealt with as well. Now, of course, in the Old Testament and in this particular story, that was pretty harsh. And if the same principle applied today, this would be a hall of very, very pretty seats. And that's about it. None of us would actually be here. None of us would be standing. But we do by the grace of God. Now, how does that work? Because Christ himself has dealt with us, the sinner. Let me read to you from, from Romans um, chapter, chapter 6. Paul just makes the point as he's writing this letter, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, if you can, let's picture for a moment that it's baptism night. And we've got our big black tub up here on the stage and we've got a, got a baptismal candidate, as we will actually in a few weeks. That's very exciting. I love baptism. Do you like baptisms? Fantastic. And we're going to have this person give a verbal testimony, but then they are going to give a visual testimony. And a visual testimony with all of its symbolism is just incredibly powerful. And this is it. This person has now died with Christ Jesus, even as Christ was died and was crucified on that cross. So they are now dead, gone, under the water, buried buried with Christ in his baptism. But we're really nice people here at Alpha Baptist Church. We don't like to leave them there more than five, six, sometimes seven minutes, depending on how... No, no, we won't go there. We, but we bring them up again, don't we? And we love the fact that as we bring them up out of the water, we are symbolizing that they too have now been risen with Christ Jesus. That tomb is empty. And likewise, even as Jesus has risen from the dead, they too are risen. It's an incredible testimony, isn't it? What a picture. What a fantastic picture of the Christian life. We have died with Christ, but we have risen with Christ as well. What is true of Christ is also true of us. And that is why in Galatians 2.20, one of... Several thousand favorite verses I have, but, but it's up there. It's up there in the top hundred of them. But I have, and you know, I've said many, many times, you're going to memorize a verse. Here's a good one to start with. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that lives. Stuart Hunt doesn't live, but Christ who lives within me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's beautiful. This is good news. This is seriously good news. Watchman Nee says of this, that God sets us free from the power of sin, not by strengthening our old person, you know, the old us, but by crucifying him. Here's a a quote. This one we can put up for you by Watchman, Watchman Nee. God's way of deliverance is altogether different from our way. Our way is to try to suppress sin by seeking to overcome it. God's way is to remove the sinner. 
Now we think, and this is, this is the trap, and this was probably the trap that I was in for many, many years, many, many years of striving to be a better Christian. I understand Jesus has dealt with my sin. Now I've just got to be a better person. Now I've just got to prove that that was worth the effort, thank you, Jesus, by being the very best Christian I can. So much striving, so much religiosity. And a little splattering of legalism in there by me as well. I had to realize that's not, that's not the way Jesus, Jesus did it. That's not Christianity. That's religion. Christianity says, I've dealt with the sin and I've dealt with you, the sinner. You died with me. Um, I could say it this way. In Christ, we actually attend our funeral long before we die. When was my funeral? When did Stuart Hunt die? A couple of thousand years ago with Christ. My funeral was that moment when I realized it. When I realized that in Christ... Stuart Hunt no longer lives, but now by invitation, because I believe in Jesus, my Savior, Christ lives in me. Um, we often, do we not, face from various sources the accusations of not making the grade of holiness that well, we kind of figure we should. Uh, we stumble around, we muck up, we, we do all sorts of things. And, and basically, I, I guess we'd have, to, we'd have to agree that on the weight of it, if you're, if you're a, a betting man, which I know none of us are, but you probably wouldn't put a whole lot of money on our personal ability to succeed in the Christian life, not by our track record. But when the accuser comes to me and says, Stuart, you know, I don't know. Does he say that to you as well? It's an... He sounds like that. Get used to that voice. I can say back to him, Ooh, I don't like, don't like that person that you're describing. But I think you're confusing me with somebody else because that person no longer exists. I'm not that person because Christ lives within me. That can be your testimony as well. It should be your testimony as well. When the accuser comes to you, yeah, well, yeah, whatever. Thank you. Interesting. Hmm. Doesn't sound like a very nice person. Ah, have you ever met somebody like that? It's just that you got me confused with somebody else. That is not me. 
When Satan accuses us, one thing I can absolutely guarantee you, it is a false accusation. You are falsely accused because you are not the person that he is describing. Jesus Christ has dealt with the sinner once and for all. I've done this exercise a little bit with us uh, once before, one other occasion. Some of you are familiar with it, um, and, um, and you know exactly where I'm going, and that's okay. But there will be many people who haven't. So, so run with me just for a moment. Humor me for a moment. Close your eyes. Now turn your attention towards Jesus. Okay, you can open your eyes again. When I asked you to turn your attention towards Jesus, let me ask you this question. In your mind's eye, as we do, did you look up or did you look in? Because what Scripture wants us to understand and by the way, both are true. Don't, don't feel like you're a heretic if you looked up. But we do have a risen, ascended Christ who rules in the heavenlies and has his enemies as his footstool. That's our savior. But through his spirit, he also dwells within us. And so we can sometimes forget that fact. We can sometimes mentally create in our faith a situation whereby there is this Spiritual distance between us and Jesus Christ because we are more concentrated on the fact that he reigns in heaven and in our mind's eye, that's up there. And we can forget that we also invited him to come and reign in our life through the spirit, didn't we? And so as we go through our day-to-day life and activities, the truth is Jesus is right here within us. And when we turn our attention towards Jesus, when we pray, he lives within us. So much of scripture, sorry if it feels like a, like a new thought or a, a foreign thought, but so much of scripture and the New Testament is pressing us to understand this. Abide in me and I will abide in you. There it is pretty simply. There is language throughout all of the epistles about being in Christ and Christ being in us, that both are, being, both are true. The life of Jesus Christ is actually taking up residence within you. It is no longer you that lives, but Christ who lives within you. And this is a wonderful truth because it means this. It means Jesus has not just dealt with your sin. He has, step four, dealt with you, the sinner. The two most important things, Watchman Nee says, for the Christian to know are these. Your sins are dealt with by the blood and you are dealt with by the cross. The blood covers your sin. By the cross, you are crucified with Christ. As Romans Romans passage, let me read from chapter 6, verses 
verses 5 through to 7, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. What is true of Christ is true for you. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Again, watch Manis says it so simply, so beautifully, you have been put in Christ and therefore all that is true of him is true of you. Now abide in him. And that's the truth. That's the reality that we now live in. What is true of Jesus is true for you. Now you, if you're given time and We don't have time tonight, but maybe you want to do this during the week. If you could isolate, what do you think? If you had to to name it, what do you think is the one most substantial obstacle that stands in the way of you being everything that God longs for you to be and that you want to be? What is the one biggest thing standing in your way? Now, some, for some of you, a particular sin might come to mind. I just can't beat that sin. I can't beat that sin. Maybe for somebody else, it's, it's pain and, and, and regret. Maybe for somebody else, it's, it's unforgiveness. Maybe for somebody else, it's, you know, what, whatever. Can you give it a name? What is... When you have your biggest doubts in your Christian walk about being everything that God wants you to be, what is that doubt? Name it. What is that doubt? And here's my question. Is that true of Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ held up somehow by this sin? No. Well, what is true of Christ is true for you. You're free. Some pain, some regret in your life that is so difficult to deal with. Is that, whatever it is, true of Jesus Christ? Nope. Well, what's true for Christ is true for you. Unforgiveness. Is Jesus hold unforgiveness in his heart towards it? No. What's true for Christ is true for you. You see, quite simply, you have been placed in Christ And all that is true of him is true of you as well. So you are free from sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. Can Jesus be a slave to sin? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. Neither can you. The enemy might say, it's gotcha. It's gotcha. Like a chain around your foot. It's gotcha. Could that be true of Jesus? Never. And it can never be true of you. In Christ, you are no longer a slave, but you have been set free from sin. You're free to be. And so tonight I would invite you to agree with God on two things, step three and step four, that your sin is dealt with, And that you, the sinner, has been dealt with as well. With regards to your sin, you can say 
with God, agree with God, I am forgiven. With regards to the sinner, you can say, I am free. Step three, deal with the sin. Jesus has you covered. You are forgiven. Step four, the sinner must be dealt with as well. On the cross, Christ has set you free. You're home. You're home. Said we'd get you home, didn't I? Four steps to get you home. Face the sin. Realize you need to deal with it. Realize that Christ has dealt with the sin and he has dealt with the sinner. The blood covers your sin. The cross covers the sinner. You are free. You're home. You're home. You no longer have to be far away from God. Let's pray. I want to thank you, Heavenly Father, tonight for the reminder that you've got us covered in every way, absolutely every way. And, and you invite us now to live in, in victory, not defeat. You invite us to understand that in Christ we are free to be everything that you have designed us to be. What a, what a beautiful thing that is to, to no longer be slaves to the doubts that we harbour, but to know that the life we always wanted is within our grasp and you want it for us as well. I pray, Heavenly Father, that now you would, you would come and take this truth and administer it to our spirit deep within us. Help us to to walk in this light, this revelation, which changes everything, absolutely everything. What a wonderful freedom we're invited to experience. Oh, Lord Jesus, now we want to experience it. What a wonderful truth that everything that is true of you is true for us as well. That's incredible. How do we get our heads around that? Help us by your spirit to do that. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And even as we sing this song, Lord, would you take the words and would you apply this truth to our heart in a, perhaps in a way we have never understood before? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.